This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This weekend is your last chance to go and see August Osage County at Columbia Entertainment Company. It's a pretty long play coming in at around three hours, but it contains without doubt some of the finest performances I have seen on Columbia stages. And so if you had been pondering going and needed a final nudge, this is the nudge. Also on this weekend is the Unbound Book Festival and I caught up with its executive director Alex George for a chat about the festival on Monday as I figured he'd be a whirling dervish by the latter half of the week. Plus we go behind the curtains of two plays, Fun Home at Talking Horse Productions which also opens this weekend and The Revolutionists at the Rheinsberger Theatre. So if you were wondering what you might do this weekend, I can assure you that, as always, there are manifold options. Let's start tonight in the literary world. This weekend, the sixth annual Unbound Book Festival takes place in Colombia. It would have been the seventh, but the pandemic stole one of them. Last year, the festival was a virtual affair, and rather than running for just one weekend and kicking off with a keynote event at the Missouri Theatre, it ran for four months and culminated in a virtual keynote conversation between poets Tracy K. Smith and Jericho Brown. But this weekend, it is back, fully in person and moving moved from Stevens College to a whole new set of downtown venues. This year, 41 authors will be visiting Columbia to talk about their books, their work and their lives. And as in past years, the festival organisers' mission is to bring together readers and writers to expose participants to new ideas and authors. And like past years, the whole event is free. The festival proper opens tomorrow night at the Missouri Theatre with a conversation with author Viet Tan Nguyen, whose novel The Sympathizer won many awards, including the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And the man in charge of waving his literary wand over the assembled visiting authors, panel discussions and other events is the owner of Columbia's Skylark Bookshop, award-winning novelist himself and super busy man, the festival's executive director, Alex George. Alex, welcome back and thank you so much for squishing in a chat on your most hectic week of the year. Of course, it's great to be here, Diana. Thank you for having me. I remember when I was a week out from Art in the Park, I would think to myself, this time next week, it will all be over. Are you counting the days till the last of the unbound toys have been packed away for another year? Are you sad when it's all over? A little bit of both, I think. I mean, right now, it feels like we're in the last 10 miles of a marathon. <laughs> and uh, there's there's still some way to go. And they're all crazy days. But um, when everybody actually gets here, it's wonderful. I mean, everything passes in a blur. And uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly relief afterwards. But you're also sort of raring to go again. And we pretty much straight away start thinking about what we're going to do next year. So this is the first time in two years that Unbound has been an in-person event, which means you've had an extended period of time to tweak and refine the events and you are moving off of the Stevens 
Queen's campus to venues that are much more centred in the downtown area. What prompted that move and what other festival tweaks are new this year? Well, there's a lot that's new. I mean, the, the, the reason why we're going downtown is just simply there was a, a scheduling double up. And the weekend that we had planned to be at Stevens, they had something already booked. And so we found ourselves looking for a new home. And so that's really why we came downtown. You know, we've always loved being at Stevens and um, they've always been wonderful hosts to us. And we're, we're sort of sorry to leave, of course, but it's also exciting to be in, in, in a new environment. And we're excited about the possibilities that moving downtown affords us. So, yeah, it's new in many ways. I mean, not having had an in-person event since 2019, it's exciting enough already. <laughs> and now we have the added excitement of um, learning about new venues. And um, But it's going to be great. We're, um, we think that the venues that we've got are, are wonderful and uh, we're, we're very much looking forward to it. So there is a lot of new things. I mean, apart from the obvious one about being downtown, uh, we're actually having a whole new mini fest on Sunday, which we've never had before. And that's something that we're calling Right On. Now, we've always done events, as you know, the, the festival is really geared towards readers, but we have always done events in the past that are more geared towards writers. And, you know, particularly um, people who have uh, who are interested in either the craft or the business of publishing. Uh, and we always do a couple of events for them. They've always been so enthusiastically received that this year we decided to put them all into a separate day on Sunday. And so and that is happening at Stevens College and we'll be there for most of the day on Sunday. So that's new and is basically a whole new sort of mini festival. And there are workshops and there are keynotes uh, and it's uh, it's going to be, I think, a really, really interesting time. And uh, we're kind of just dipping our toe in the water with that, but we're very much looking forward to seeing how it goes and, and making that grow in subsequent years. Is that a free event as well or is that a paid for event? So that one we do, we are asking $50 for. And the reason for that is simply, you know, as we've discovered over the years, everything else at Unbound is free. And that's a very important principle to which we cling to. But one of the problems with having a free event is that uh, very often people don't show up, mm-hmm. which is fine, of course. But when it's something like this and there are other people who want to do it, we're charging really just so that we can guarantee that people are going to turn up on Sunday. So that's the reason why we're to do that. It's an interesting collection of topics, utilising fan fiction to share your story, using our monsters to find inspiration, how to take insights from and find inspiration in role-playing games, an introduction to 10-minute playwriting. What level of writer are these workshops aimed at and, and how much advanced prep are participants expected to do? No advanced prep is necessary. And the answer is that these are designed to really, whatever every uh, writer brings to it, they're going to get something out of it. So any level of expertise, uh, there will be something for them. I mean, they, uh, they're very fun topics, uh, rather more interesting, I think, than a lot of topics that one sometimes sees at these sorts of workshops. I mean, that seems very on brand <laughs> for the <laughs> festival as a whole. We try and do things a little bit differently. So yeah, we're going to do workshops about monsters. Um, but we're excited about it. We've got some wonderful people who are coming to give these workshops. And we have this great opening presentation by Sarah DeVello, who is an author who lives in Massachusetts. And she's a published author, but she's also uh, is a consultant to authors on their social media. 
Uh, and so she's going to be giving this this presentation about Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all of the things. A lot of do's and don'ts because a lot of authors get that stuff wrong. Uh, it's very easy to get wrong. And so she's going to be providing a roadmap uh, and how to do it right. So back in 2019, you brought 57 authors to Columbia. And this year we have 41 writers coming to spend the weekend here from around the country. Did you find that authors were desperate to get back out to meet their readers? Or is there still a little reticence about traveling and being in crowds again? Oh, there is definitely a tiny bit of reticence. Um, Certainly one of the authors who was scheduled to come, well, actually, (laughs) so he went to England, Diana, and got COVID when he was there. Yeah, so not a great experience. And ever since then, he's very, very reluctant to get onto a plane. So he's actually going to be zooming in and not, um, not appearing in person, which I'm Sorry about, but I completely understand. So there is certainly some reticence and a lot of people have asked about protocols and what we're doing to keep people safe. And so, you know, authors are always concerned about that kind of stuff. So we're, we're sort of dipping our toe back into the waters, you know, a little bit at a time. But we're, we're hopeful that everything will go well and uh, hopefully we'll get back and continue to grow And uh, in 2023. And by then, hopefully, fingers crossed that people won't have any more reservations about travelling. How do you choose the authors who come? Well, it's <laughs> it's a complicated procedure. Uh, for some reason, the, the image of, of um, the, the chimney in the Vatican with the white smoke <laughs> and the black smoke <laughs> suddenly comes to mind because the process is probably about as, as labyrinthine as, <laughs> as that one. Uh, it's really complicated. I mean, we have seven people on the programming committee and the way that it actually works is what we tend to do is to come up with topics first. And then when we have a topic that we like, then we try and populate it. And so, for example, we've always for a long time have wanted to do a panel about baseball. And this year we finally got to do it. And so once we had settled on that, then we cast around looking for the right authors to bring to that particular panel. So that tends to be how it works. The The topic comes first and then we, we populate it accordingly. And occasionally... There will be an author who we particularly like and we'll build a panel around them. But it tends to be more the topics come first. And then we draw up a list of people who we would like to have and we sort of have a first choice. And then, you know, it's inevitable that some people are unavailable or that come. And so then we move down the list until we've sort of filled up all of our slots. And what we try and do uh, with all of these panels is to present a variety of different perspectives. So very often what we will do is have on any one panel, um, a a poet and a fiction writer and a non-fiction writer. Because everybody comes to these things with different sensibilities, they think about things in a different way. And so that often provides a more thought-provoking discussion. Well, then I guess the next question is, who comes up with the topics? Because I was fascinated to look through the collection of them. You have, like you said, you have things ranging from baseball, labor unions and the city of Detroit to explorations of the complex relationship between time and queerness, the poignancy of nostalgia, a look at the medical industrial complex and banned books. So that is a very wide ranging group of topics that I assumed you had the authors and then thought, oh, okay, well, how can we group these people together? But more often than not, you're saying it's kind of the other way around. So how did all of those topics come to fruition? 
Well, I mean, everyone has its own story, I suppose. I mean, certainly with Detroit, you mentioned Detroit. I mean, every year we pick a city and do a panel with writers either from that city or who've written about that city. Back in 2019, it was Chicago. This year, it's Detroit. Uh, I'm not quite sure where we're going to go next. But um, so there are things like that. And often, lots and lots of ideas come up and we find that we can't do something in one particular year. So we then say, well, we'll just try and do it next year instead. And so some of these things have been around for a little while. Some things like the labor panel that you mentioned or banned books, we do because they're topical. You know, um, right now, of course, with the labor, there, there are all of these lawsuits with Amazon and people trying to unionize. And then with banned books, of course, there, there are more attempts at banning books have been made in 2021 than in recent years. And we actually have Maya Kababi, who's one of the authors who is coming. Her book, Gender Queer, is the most banned book in the country wow. in 2021. So we we sort of feel that we couldn't let her come and not ask her to talk about it. So she's going to be talking with Brian Catcher, who's a local author. He's a YA author who has also had his book banned, but he's also a school librarian. So he brings two very different perspectives to the discussion. And then the final person on that panel is Larissa Lidsky, who is the dean of the MU Law School, and she is a First Amendment expert. So she's going to be providing the legal underpinnings for the whole discussion. Um, I think it's going to be a really really interesting discussion so where we can we will do things that seem topical or relevant and sometimes it's just things that are just you know we sit around the table and go hey, what about this or what about that and um and very often that's how it comes is there's no one's quite sure how that particular sausage gets made but these <laughs> ideas sort of percolate up from the conversations yeah i feel like the banned books conversation or panel discussion might be the one that is the most sought after given the times that we live in. So this year your big headline author is the multi-award winning novelist Viet Tan Win. Tell us a little bit about his work and why the festival committee chose him to be their keynote speaker. Well anybody who has read any of Viet's uh, either of Viet's novels or his short stories or his essays will know. He is an extraordinary writer. He writes with extraordinary vividness and he addresses some incredibly difficult topics and does it with humour, but with also a really sort of profound understanding of his subject matter. He is also just an extraordinary speaker. I've seen him speak before and uh, he's masterful, very funny, and he is going to be be wonderful. Every year we have a list, which goes from year to year, of people who we want to invite to be the keynote speaker. And Viet was at the very top of our list this year. And so we were thrilled when he said yes, because uh, <laughs> sometimes working out who the keynote is going to be can be a bit of a struggle. But this year it was wonderful because we just wrote, we said, do you want to come? And he said, absolutely. And so we were, we were thrilled. And is that... A talk where he just talks by himself or do you have a, a conversation with him? Is somebody else moderating that or in discussion with him? So almost always it's a discussion. Uh, the one exception to that was Salman Rushdie, uh, who came in 2017. And he, he there was the one year that we left the Missouri Theatre and we were actually in Jesse Auditorium. And there were, oh, I think about 1,500 people in the room. And Salman Rushdie stood up and talked for about two and a half hours. 
it was the most amazing evening. He just he read a short story that he finished on the plane, and he, he walked out and he said, "So I've just finished this story. <laughs> uh, would you like to hear it?" <laughs> <laughs> like the the noise in the room, like, oh, really? Uh, so that was wonderful. But you know, he's Salman Rushdie. But everybody else that we've had, whether it's Zadie Smith or George Saunders or Michael Andache, we've always had a, an interlocutor, and this is no different. Um, and this year, uh, actually, contrary to what it says in the program, Fong Wen is going to be interviewing him. Fong is the Miller Chair of Creative Writing at MU. He is a, a renowned uh, novelist himself. And uh, we're very much looking forward to that conversation. And a past guest on Speaking of the Arts, in fact. Are there still seats available? I don't think there are any that are left that can be reserved. But what I always say to everybody is that even if you don't have a ticket, if you want to come, you should show up anyway. I mentioned before about the fact that when you have a free event, lots of people don't show up. I mean, when I say lots, we're talking 30 to 40 percent. So always I say to people, show up anyway. We let people without tickets in at 7.15. The event starts at 7.30. And so if you have a ticket, you need to be in your seat by 7.15 because that's when we let everyone else in. Now, there's a first time for everything. I understand that. But so far, we have never turned anybody away from a keynote address. So as I say, even if you don't have a ticket, you should still come and and, uh, hopefully we'll find a place for you. So as the executive director of the festival, you probably don't get to go (laughs) to all of these great panel discussions. But which are the ones that are the must see ones, the ones that you are going to find time to go and see? Well, you're right. I, I mean, I see almost nothing. And all I get is all day. It's just, oh, it was fantastic. It was so good. And I'm going, Great. Lovely. So happy. But um, I mean, there are so many. I mean, this year is really, really thrilled at the, the program that we put together. One that I think is, is going to be particularly interesting uh, is called Picture Perfect. And that is um, a panel about graphic memoir. Graphic novels and graphic nonfiction are becoming more and more popular. We've certainly seen a, a massive rise at Skylark of, of people interested in those. And we have got three of the best known writers of graphic memoir who are coming to talk about it. And, uh, you know, speaking as somebody who can't draw a straight line, I'm always intrigued at how these people manage to use two mediums at the same time. And so they, you know, the whole thing about a picture being worth a thousand words, having to negotiate these two different modes of expression at once is really, really interesting. And I think particularly in the context of a memoir. So that's going to be very interesting. And then something that I'm I'm really looking forward to is the one called Do No Harm. Uh, and that is the one about the medical industrial complex that you mentioned earlier. The two authors on that panel are both very, very good writers Patrick Radden Keefe is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's written two national bestsellers. Uh, his most recent one about the Sackler family. And it's a difficult book to read, um, but a very important book. And um, he is going to be talking about that. And then he's going to be talking with Catherine Standifer, who has written a book called The Lightning Flowers, which is about her investigation. So a while ago, she had a uh, something fitted into her heart, went wrong. And uh, she survived, obviously, and is fine now. But she decided to investigate how 
that machine was made and where it was made and the conditions under which it was manufactured it got from where it was made to the hospital where it was put inside her and so it's a really deep dive into the cost of these medical procedures and gadgets and how they are made and perhaps unsurprisingly even something that seems to be a universally good thing there are costs involved in having them made and manufactured and so it's two different sides to the sort of medical infrastructure and um, it's going to be very very interesting I also want to quickly touch on the festival's Authors in the Schools programme, which this year, I believe, features in-person mm. visits by four authors plus a virtual visit by another. How can aspiring young writers get involved with these visits? Where are they happening? We work closely with Columbia Public Schools and the authors who are appearing in person and also in Jerry Craft, who's appearing online it's all through classrooms at cps so as the festival director i have very little control over that but that's kind of how it works so the only thing that if you're not lucky enough to be in a classroom who will be tuning in or having a visit from one of these authors min lee who is one of our two keynotes will be appearing at daniel boone regional library at 10 o'clock on on Saturday in person. And so you can go and see him then. On the subject of young writers, would also mention we have a, an amazing event on Saturday at All Street at 1.30, which we're calling Como Young Writers. And these are teenagers who, since January, have been getting together regularly on, on, on a weekly basis to workshop and prepare poems that they will be reading to an audience uh, live at the festival and so if that's something that sounds as if it might be of interest then anyone who's interested in that should come along and learn more about it and maybe they can get involved next year that's a great event i'm not going to ask you which of the 41 visiting authors you are most looking forward to seeing because obviously you love them all equally but Absolutely. maybe i could <laughs> phrase it this way of the visiting authors Whose career are you really tracking as a rising star or next big thing? Oh, that's so interesting. So, so many of these authors are... It's been interesting. Um, in the bookshop, we've been... If you go in there now, there are now mountains and mountains and mountains <laughs> of books on the front tables. But what's interesting is that this year, more than any other year, pretty much everybody who's coming is young. And they are very much at the start of their careers. In the past, we have had more of a mixture with some more established writers. I'm thinking about 2019. We had people like, I mean, legends like Mary Morris, who came and with lots and lots and lots of books behind them. But this year, a lot of the people who are coming, one or two books. So everybody is really excitingly near the beginning of their career. So it's going to be fascinating to see where they all come. And I'm certainly in hopes that in 10 years time, we'll be going, well, of course, they came to Colombia before anybody really knew them. 
Yeah, that's always exciting when that happens and you can say you saw them oh, years ago. Saw them years ago. <laughs> the sixth Unbound Book Festival starts tomorrow evening at the Missouri Theatre with a keynote speech by Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Viet Tan Nguyen and then continues all day Saturday. As always, all the author talks and panel discussions are free of charge. And as we are still in pandemic times, you will need to show proof of full vaccination or a negative COVID test taken within four. 48 hours. Also, remember to bring a mask as all attendees are required to wear a mask whilst indoors at Unbound events. To see the festival schedule and find out more about all the visiting authors, go to unboundbookfestival.com. And Alex George, Executive Director, thank you so much for carving out time for this chat. Thanks, Diana. In late 18th century France, a lot of people were losing their heads, literally. The period after the French Revolution is known as the Reign of Terror, a roughly 18-month period between early 1793 and July 1794. It was a time characterised by a rejection of the corrupt influence of the aristocracy and the clergy. To deal with all the offenders of the old order, a revolutionary court was set up for the trial of political offenders and, needless to say, they saw treason at every turn. They declared that terror was the order of the day, cited public criticism as a treasonable offence and lopped the heads off an estimated 17,000 people. Plus, they let 10,000 people die in prison without a trial. It was not a good time to be an ex-queen, a member of the political opposition, a freedom fighter for civil rights, or even a playwright. But America's most produced playwright, Lauren Gunderson, imagined them all hanging out together, and the result is a play called The Revolutionists, based on real women, real transcripts, and real executions. That is also mostly a comedy. Featuring Marie Antoinette, the assassin Charlotte Corday, the playwright Olympe de Gouges, and Marianne Angèle, a fictional character based on the national symbol of the French Republic. And next week, the play opens at the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre, and I am delighted that we get to chat with the show's director, Claire Seiler. Welcome back to the show, Claire. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Diana. And man, your intro makes me very excited to see this show as well. (laughs) It is an awesome play. (laughs) It is. At this point, one week out from opening, do you feel like you're losing your head or is everything calm? (laughs) What a fabulous question. No, honestly, I, I feel quite excited. I often think of this time period as like the ride up the roller coaster, like you're just starting to click, click, <laughs> click up <laughs> because there's a lot of things to get done. But it's really exciting. It's so exciting to see all the pieces come together. Um, and and there's things that we've been working on for months, a year <laughs> in some ways. So it, it's an exciting time. Lauren Gunderson has topped the list of most produced playwrights in America for several years. And she said that she writes plays to give women voice and put their struggles, passions, power and wit centre stage. How difficult is it to find plays that do that? Well, I think it's becoming easier and easier. And it's become an explicit goal for a lot of playwrights that are working right now, including Lauren. And so 
if you're looking in writers that are working particularly in the last 15 years, you will find more than you ever have. But traditionally, canonically, there's current real debate over what should be in quote the canon. It has been much harder because the stories that we are used to hearing about oftentimes are those of quote great men. That being said, uh, you know, there have always been stories about women, and there's there's a lot of debate in terms of the representation and, and the ways that we have looked at women, but you will find incredible female characters in the Greeks and Shakespeare and the Golden Age plays of Spain. But um, the kind of diverse experiences that are being really focused on today is is a new moment. An exciting new moment. It is. Well, there are four women in the play who, as the play's blurb says, lived boldly during <laughs> the reign of terror. Three of them were real, Marie Antoinette, Charlotte Corday and Olympe de Gouges, plus one fictional, a Haitian rebel fighting for independence from France and slavery. And I confess that I had never heard of Charlotte Corday or Olympe de Gouges before reading this play. Shame on me. So Claire, give us a synopsis of the plot and a little about the three real women from history that we meet. Absolutely. One of the great joys of working on this play has been, as I have said, falling into this moment in history and getting to know the incredible women um, of that time period. So Olympe de Gouges is a real, uh, was a real woman and she is simply extraordinary in, in what she achieved. I have jokingly said to the actresses that the most important and perhaps fortunate thing that happened to her was that she was, um, her husband rather, was killed early in her life. And so she could be a widow who owned her own property and could live her own life. So that happened to her early, like around 20. And so that was a very fortunate thing for her in the sense that she could then move to Paris and kind of create herself and really... Her gifts for writing were extraordinary. She had plays produced at the Comédie Française, the, the National Theatre of France, um, that were focusing on abolition, um, the abolition of slavery, as well as the, the desire for female rights, women to be able to divorce their husbands. That was a very important goal of hers, as well as women to be able to claim the children that they'd had. So these ideas of, of women's rights in the public sphere were, were deeply important to her. Charlotte Corday is someone else. She is, um, and both, I should say, de Gouge and Corday, in 1793, during the Reign of Terror, they are much more moderate than the Jacobin Party, which is completely anti any sort of monarchy. And de Gouge and Corday are both interested in perhaps more of a constitutional monarchy like Britain has, as well as being interested in what the people want, as opposed to what one party wants. And if the people want a constitutional monarchy, both of those women were open to that. And because Corday, so Charlotte Corday is young, in her teens, late teens, and she's seeing many people around her being killed because because they are interested in a constitutional monarchy, because they want to sort of preserve some vestige of the monarchical system. And that puts her at odds with the journalist Jean-Paul Marat, who is um, a Jacobin and working with Robespierre. And so she decides, and she gets it really focused on the fact that Marat is the person that has to go. And if, if Marat could go, that would create an opening, and it would also be a more just and equitable way of moving forward. So she takes it upon herself to kill him. Now, of course, this is a bit um, 
it's a bit of a challenge in the sense that it doesn't do that. Um, and it's really one of her great sadnesses that in the play, at least, she doesn't realize the ways that this act will be turned against her. And Mara's actually held up as a martyr for the revolution. So, so those are two women that are absolutely real fascinating lives. And then, of course, we have Marie Antoinette, the former Queen of France. In the play, she is not necessarily the Marie Antoinette you would know in 1793, who's about to die. Her husband's already died. We know that Marie Antoinette at that point was really living in a prison-like setting. It's not clear the amount of torture she was experiencing or did experience, but it was not a pleasant existence. Um, so in the play, she is much more of a fictional um, person. We are we have her in beautiful gowns, even though that's not accurate in terms of the, the historicity of 1793. But she is very much aware of what's coming. And in the play, which really does start out as a comedy, <laughs> it is an imagined scenario of Olympe's study where she is attempting to write a play and these three women show up to all have requests of their own. They all have things that they want her to write for them. And I can talk more about Marianne Angel as well. But if you, if you need to cut me off at any point, that's fine. No, that too. was going to be my next question, which is the fourth person is a fictional woman who Gunderson describes as a badass black woman in Paris from the Caribbean. But she's more than that. She's a metaphor for liberation. And uh, she's described as the sanest of them all. So tell us about Marianne Angel. So Marianne is fascinating. I personally think of her as a composite character because there had to have been multiple free women of color who were working both in what is we today we call Haiti, at the time Saint-Domingue, as well as coming to Paris. In all likelihood, she would have been a free woman of color, meaning that she was always raised as free. And in the kind of racial hierarchy that was Saint-Domingue, or today's Haiti, which was not like the United States at the time, in the sense that when the Grand Blancs of Haiti, the, the white ruling class, had forced relations with their enslaved black women, they would then have what they called jeunes de color, the people of color. Um, and these, the free people of color were the descendants of these Grand Blanc farmers, essentially, the planters. And, and so they were free. They, they oftentimes enslaved as well. Many times the gender couleur were sent off to Paris to be educated. And then they would return to Saint-Domingue slash Haiti to have their own planting fields, etc. So it's, it's wonderful that Gunderson gives us Marianne because her name gives us the sense that she is the angel of France, and Marianne being the personification of France. And she's also the inheritor of these women's stories. So during the course of the play, de Gouges, Corday, and Antoinette, Marie Antoinette, they all die. But at the end, we still have Marianne, and she inherits these stories to tell. So she, she is a fascinating, rich, composite character. So it's got a very contemporary dialogue, but the play is set in the late 18th century. So tell us about the costumes and your staging of this production. Yeah, so the the thing that is so fun about this play is the vernacular contemporary language that the women use. They say things like, girl, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Marie Antoinette says, hold the throne instead of hold the phone. So there, there's a ton of things that just they, they sound like you and me. And I think the college students who see this production and the undergraduate and graduate student actresses that are in it have really loved being able to 
embody characters uh, that have such historical <laughs> dimensions, but also sound and seem so realistic. That kind of contradiction I wanted to play with. And so the the staging is that of a drawing room, really. It's, it's what's called a safe space for Olymp in the stage. It's really her study. It's where she's writing as a writer. And also the guillotine the outdoors. There's like an interior and exterior spaces. But that drawing room that we have staged really does look like a late 18th century drawing room. It has a bookcase and it has a fireplace and a chandelier and all those things. And the costumes are very much of that era as well. The women have on corsets. They have on beautiful long dresses, um, that being said, I have not chosen to have them wear all of the padding that they would really have worn as ladies of their class at the time. The only person who has on kind of padding to make her a, a fuller silhouette is Marie Antoinette. So some things that make the women appear a bit more contemporary and that their long dresses aren't bustled, etc. And then we're going to use some bits of contemporary music as well to have that nod to a contemporary feel. But really, it's the language. The language is what's going to help us kind of have that juxtaposition of contemporary with historical. I can't wait to see it. I think this is such an interesting play. And I think also with the costuming, particularly because we're all about Bridgerton these days, even though that's a oh. little bit later. But I mean, that idea of the, you know, the <laughs> yes. corset coming back, I think. <laughs> Very much. Has something in it. Lauren Gunderson said, it's hard to disguise fully that I am really writing about myself when I'm writing about Olympe de Cuge. And I'm curious, final question, about who you most identify with, Claire? Well, I would have to say I identify with Olympe as well. Um, part of my job at the university is obviously to teach and direct and engage in the amazing practice of theater, but also it is to be a researcher, which is inevitably about reading and writing and observing the world and reading the world. So I really do identify with Olympe as a writer and as somebody who's trying to say something meaningful, as she says oftentimes in the play. <laughs> and and one of the things that became meaningful for me about this play that I'm not sure Lauren Gunderson could have anticipated, but it is, is that in my research for, for this play, I realized just how central the relationship between the French Revolution and Missouri is, um, because we would not have this state if it hadn't have been for the French Revolution. And we certainly wouldn't have this state if it hadn't have been for the people of Saint-Domingue rising up against the French and taking control of that island and making it theirs and christening it the indigenous name of Haiti. Because it was when Haiti essentially went to the indigenous and enslaved people and, and they, they earned their freedom of that island, then Napoleon essentially says, okay, I'm going to sell this, quote, Louisiana Purchase. Louisiana Purchase, of course, the name of Louis, the king um, the Bourbon dynasty. So we have St. Louis, we have all these French colonial towns along the Mississippi in our state as the inheritors of that French colonial traditions here. And so that was pretty meaningful for me. Also, as somebody who's interested as a researcher who thinks about place, to see the ways that this time period actually had a direct impact on the creation of the place that I live in today. That is fascinating. I see a Claire Siler play coming up in the future about exactly that. <laughs> 
The Revolutionists by playwright Lauren Gunderson opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre at the University of Missouri next Wednesday, April the 27th and runs through Sunday, May the 1st. Evening performances start at 7.30 and there are two matinee performances on both Saturday the 30th and Sunday the 1st. To find out more, go to theatre.missouri.edu and director Claire Seiler, thank you for bringing us a play about strong women and for taking time to chat today. My great pleasure. Thank you so much. It is three and a half years since the musical Fun Home was last performed on a Columbia stage. Then it was on at the Mecklenburg Playhouse at Stevens College, but tomorrow night it opens on a much more intimate stage, the Black Box Theatre of Talking Horse Productions. Fun Home is one of those musicals which elicits a lot of excitement in the local theatre world. It is contemporary. It was first performed off-Broadway in 2013 and on-Broadway in 2015. It is adapted for the stage, unusually, from a graphic novel written and illustrated by cartoonist Alison Bechdel. And the work centres around themes of sexual orientation, gender roles and family dysfunction. Alison wrote the original graphic novel as a memoir, a way to revisit and understand her family and her father's suicide, which happened when she was just 19 and had just come out to her parents. The musical version of her novel was written by playwright Lisa Cron, with the music composed by Janine Tesori, who also wrote the music for Shrek, the musical, and Mulan too. It is the first Broadway musical with a lesbian lead character and the Broadway production was nominated for an incredible 12 Tony Awards, of which it won five. And the musical was also a finalist for the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. And now it is in the hands of director Kathleen Johnson, who is joining me this evening, along with actor Mallory Donahue, who is playing one of the three versions of Alison Bechtel. Kathleen and Mallory, how lovely to have you back on the show. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So, Kathleen, when you take on a play that has had such success and won multiple awards, does that give you directing confidence? Is it clearly a very well-constructed play (laughs) or does it feel a little intimidating because it comes with high expectations? I would say maybe a little bit of both. I mean, I think that to me especially with musicals. I know it's a show that I want to do when it gives me those goosebumpy feelings when I read it and when I listen to it. And beyond that, I mean, knowing that it has won so many awards and received such acclaim just like adds to it. But I feel like if it can strike a feeling within you, then that means that it it, it must also be meaningful to other people. And I, I think this one, especially given the experiences within the cast, as well as like so many relatable moments, make it a perfect show to bring to this community. So Mallory, it's a complex story to tell as it switches back and forth between three different timelines. So give us a synopsis of the play. Sure. So like you said, three different timelines. So there is a small Allison who is around nine years old. There's college age Allison who's 18, 19. And then there is me called Big Al around the theater. Um, (laughs) And I'm 43. So it is a little confusing. Uh, from a line memorization standpoint, because I'm like, wait, which scene are we revisiting at this point? Um, So it's a complex story to tell. Kathleen has done a great job of creating 
different atmospheres for the different timelines. The audience is going to know right where they are every time we switch between the timelines. And Big Allison is remembering throughout the whole show. She's working, she's drawing, she's writing. And the writers made it clear that she's not really supposed to be a narrator. You know, the audience is supposed to be observing her thoughts. But it is really interesting to watch the actors and the way Kathleen's directed it. It makes me feel like I am remembering it. You know, these memories are replaying in my mind, just like any memory would. So it is complex to tell. But like you said, it's so well written. And Kathleen's done a great job of creating those spaces in the theater that it's very compelling. So you have Big Allison in whatever the current day is, and she is remembering things that happened to her. And then you have the world of small Alison, and you have the world of medium Alison. So Mallory, tell us a little bit about medium Alison and what she's living through that Alison, grown-up Alison, is remembering. Sure. So she zooms in, uh, really zooms in on the time where she's starting college, where she discovers her sexual orientation or, you know, that comes to the the surface for her. We see her come out to a friend. We see her come out to her parents via letter. And then we see medium Allison's final visit home where it's the last time that she sees her father alive. So we zoom in on that part of her life at Oberlin College. And one of the things, I'm clearly a bit dim, but one of the things that I only realized when I was researching it this time around, having talked to the cast and the director back in 2018, was that Fun Home is short for Funeral Home because, <laughs> how dim am I? Because little Alison and the family, her dad is a funeral director, right? And so the early part, little Alison, it's about a portion of her childhood. We don't really know other than her age, right? It's not, it doesn't really center around an event. I think that you are right. Like most of this play, there's no one moment that is the most important, the most pivotal, the thing that everything builds up to necessarily with maybe the exception of the death of her father. But it, it really is, like Mallory said, a, a memory play. And memory is one of those tricky things. There are bits and pieces of our past that stick out to us in such vivid detail and others that just wisp away and float away. And discovering over the course of the play, and I think because it's nonlinear, it can feel a little intimidating going in as an actor, as a director, and as an audience member saying, am I going to be able to follow what's happening? But in some ways, the nonlinear aspect of it, the idea that we get to bounce in and out of little Allison at different times, college Allison, and then watch adult Allison process it, helps us see a change that takes place for all of the characters and helps us like really see their growth over time. It's interesting. One of the things that I hadn't thought about, and it talks about it in the forward to the play, is that the difference between plays and novels is how in a play, it's always now on stage. A novel is what took place and that allows for that inner dialogue of the characters. And so whilst Fun Home, the novel, kind of looks back in time and the play is about memories or talks about memories, in the play, it's still about memories, but it's always now <laughs> on the stage. Is that difficult to direct? 
Is it bad if I say no? I don't know. I think <laughs> that, um, what I think is so exciting about it, you know, honestly, the thing that I kept coming back to, Allison Mallory has this line that is actually mirrored um, with her father as well. And she says, I want to know what's true dig deep into who and what and why and when until now gives way to then. And I think that is such a perfect encapsulation of what the story is. And I would say from a directing standpoint, I found myself often saying, Mallory, I'm going to come to you in a minute. I promise I'll get back to you in a minute because she's kind of in the same position I am through most of the process, which is we have to take the scene that's in front of us. And for those characters, it is exactly what's happening. It is now. But then we step back and we get to say, what would it be like to step into a memory and watch it play out? Where do you observe it from? Where do you stand? What do you get to see? What moments hit differently for you watching yourself live through something. So there's that duality that's constantly playing. And Mallory has done such a wonderful job taking that on, really, and being so open to just playing around with different different ideas and different ways. There is not a lot of set blocking for her, but we find touch points throughout the rehearsal process that are like, oh, that is beautiful. Let's keep that. Let's focus in on this. So, Mallory, the other central person in the story is Alison's father, Bruce, who is a tragic figure. He's trapped by societal norms. He's hiding his sexuality. He's frustrated by the life he finds himself in. But he doesn't come across as a particularly likable man. Tell us a little bit about Bruce and Alison's relationship with him. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I love it just so the listeners know. So Alison Bechtel's like a real person. All this stuff pretty much actually happened, you know. And I think she's a very self-aware memoirist. So it's not saccharine. It's not overwrought. And of course, this book, Fun Home, is very much about the relationship with her father. And she's very honest. He's objectively, well, maybe he's not objectively anything, but he does things that are predatory things that are abusive uh, to his family, and they're depicted in the show. And Alison Bechtel has talked about her own journey through, like, therapy and psychoanalysis to see how she wants to remember things or see how she wants to frame these things in her life so that she can grow and develop and reconcile these memories and reconcile the way society impacted both her and her father being people who are gay. So many of his harshest moments are portrayed in the play. And then also the way that Allison has succeeded in reconciling his memory and also how his memory has served her as she goes forth into the world. Um, I just reread the book. I've read it like three times now. And it's pretty amazing the, the mental work that she has done around that. But yet he's very tragic figure, of course, dies by suicide in the play. It's very clear the struggles he has faced. She's very compassionate about showing those. And the the moments that he has on the stage are just very uh, genuinely portrayed by Trent in our production by Trent Rash. Who played the father he played Bruce last time I saw it at Stevens too. That's so it'd right. Be interesting to see yes. him reprise that role. Kathleen, there are three children in the play. There's small Alison and also her two brothers. And the play has a lot of complex adult emotions. Uh, how did you 
prepare the children for taking on these roles? First and foremost, their parents all knew going in sort of the the content of the show and the structure of the show. I would say that this is... It is not a show for children, but I do think of a certain age, it can be a really powerful and moving show. Kids are so intelligent and so observant, and the things that happen in the show are incredibly real. And so for our cast, when we came back to this again and started, we just had a pretty frank conversation that said, hey, as we go through, if you have a question about something that's happening, if you have a strong feeling about something that's happening, let's make sure we make space and time to share that. And really, that was for all of our cast members, not just our kids. Some of what makes this show so much fun, even in its, um, with all the tragedy wrapped up in it, is that the moments with those kids add so much light and levity. It really is a comedy in many ways. And I know that sounds very odd to say, especially if you've read a description of it or listened to the music, but there are some really joyful moments, some very funny moments. And I think that makes it feel even more like real life. The kids have been just incredible. They are pushing themselves. They are working so hard. And they, I think, remind us all how, at the end of the day, this should be a joyful process. The other thing I want to ask you about, Kathleen, is the staging of it. So when I saw it at Stevens, it was on a big proscenium stage with scenery that helped to move us between the different time frames. And plus there was an orchestra pit and you're taking all of this and recreating it in a pretty small black box theatre. Tell me about your staging decisions and how you fit it all in. Well, we tried not to consume too much visual or, or video versions of the original production, but way back when I first applied to direct this, like three years ago, I had read that the original production was done in the round. And when I knew that Talking Horse was doing it, I said to the producers, I said, I really would like to bring this show back in the round in this space. Obviously, when it was originally done on Broadway, it was a much bigger in the round. Um, We're much closer. But there's just something I think so moving about a play that asks you to step inside these moments with Allison and then literally surrounding the space um, that we're all in. It's almost like a brain, if you will, like a mind, right? And we're all living inside of it when we get into the theater. It also presents a little bit of a challenge, I think a fun challenge of saying, uh, forcing me to make sure that characters are consistently moving through the space that we're utilizing every inch of that rectangle that we have and really allowing everyone to see almost all of it and some people to have really close-up intimate moments with certain parts. So we're in the round where everyone is sharing in that collective together. Mallory, you just referenced earlier about how Kathleen did a great job of of making those time frames different from each other. Talk to me just quickly about that before we close. Sure. So there's very clear choices about we move between the college dorm room and the fun home, right? Or Allison's childhood home, which is this Victorian manor almost. And She's brought in set pieces that serve, of course, more than one purpose. Hopefully, 
my contributions as the costumer also help to create the spaces <laughs> I'm hoping. Very <laughs> much so. Very much so, so. We've got, you know, it's it's this balancing act, I think Kathleen will say, is we're working with this small space and with a very spare setup, but a lot of opulence existed, you know, in that home. And then the dorm room, of course, you know, has its own space. And Allison illustrated all these things, right? Like her memoir is extremely dense, the the drawings. So these spaces were created in the book. and We want to make sure that we've got them on the stage. So I guess I find it hard to explain, but she's done a great job. You're going to see it. Kathleen, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I would say, um, so Alfred Hitchcock always sort of said of horror, it's almost scarier what you imagine in your mind as opposed Mm -hmm. to what you show. And I think that especially working in theaters like Talking Horses stage, I kind of bring that same idea to play where if I need something there because the audience needs something to ground them to help them see a particular space and the actors too, then we want it there. A totally sparse stage can be confusing. But sometimes putting too much into a space can take away and doesn't lend enough credit to an audience's ability to be able to imagine something even more profound than I would ever be able to create. And so it's really been a balancing act. And the same with costumes, too. We don't have 13 costume changes for all of our characters, but we have just enough. We don't have an entire Victorian house that's wallpapered and filled with all of the antiques that he would have had, but we have enough that I think it it becomes a dialogue back and forth between the play and the audience to say, yeah, I'm going to meet you halfway. And then it allows us to really focus on what are the characters doing? What are they saying? Who are they looking at in each moment? And that becomes the most important focal point for everyone. Well, you can meet the characters of Fun Home Halfway starting from tomorrow night when it opens at Talking Horse Productions in Columbia on St. James Street and runs for three weekends, closing on Sunday, May the 8th. Evening performances start at 7.30 and Sunday matinees at 2. And to find out more, go to talkinghorseproductions.org. And Kathleen Johnson and Mallory Donahue, thanks for giving us a sneak peek behind the curtains and for making time to chat on a busy week. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, Unbound Book Festival Executive Director Alex George, MU Theatre Director Claire Seiler, and from Talking Horse Productions, Director Kathleen Johnson and actor Mallory Donahue. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.